0: Pastor and author, Charles Swindoll, once said, the devil, darkness, and death may swagger and boast. The pangs of life will sting for a while longer, but don't worry. The forces of evil are breathing their last. Not to worry. He's risen. From the onset of the Massive response to this virus across our country and indeed the world. People have been referring to the new social distancing guidelines and recommendations by government health agencies as our new reality. They say it's a a new way of life, no longer shaking hands, fewer in-person meetings, more online engagement, stricter guidelines for hand-washing and how we interact with one another in person and of course on and on. And on it goes. It's a new reality, even if a temporary one. The fact that how most people are living their lives on a daily basis has changed as the spread of this disruptive virus and really the threat of it more than anything else continues to inform our decisions and choices about how we live from day to day. And yet as impactful as this pandemic has been, you understand it cannot hold a candle To the impact of the gospel which is the creed of every Christian it's the story of the Messiah the Savior of the world it's the story that defines our faith anchors our hope and informs every single aspect of our lives the gospel of Jesus Christ not a virus Not economic hardship or any other temporary threat that we face in this life because at the very center of that gospel is the victory of life over death. Jesus' atoning death on the cross that paid for our sins and then of course his resurrection three days later which validated that work on the cross proving that he was who he said he was, the son of the living God and that he had done what he said he would do, conquering death death and the grave forevermore. And so for the Christian, listen, for the, for the Christian, that victory of life over death, that is our reality. And so you understand the gospel is not just a story that happened a long time ago that we believe in. It's also an ongoing story that we're currently living in as it continues to unfold in our daily lives, informing every aspect of how we live from day to day because the lives of everyone who belong to him including all of those who ever will belong to him in the future our lives are a vital part of that story okay that that's our reality right far more than any temporary affliction in this life the reality of the resurrection, the reality that Jesus secured an eternal victory over death, that reality should permeate every aspect of our lives far more than anything else. And so our faith in Jesus, our hope in the future, our purpose for living the way that we do as Christians, all of that is inextricably linked to the resurrection. Because look, if Jesus didn't pass from death to life, then neither did we. And so like the rest of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a story we believe in. It is a reality that we're living in. It has to be. Otherwise, we're not following Jesus Christ, right? We're simply following a religion like all of the other religions where people follow the teachings of religious leaders who died and stayed dead, right? As Christians, we aren't following a religion we're following a person and yet if that person is dead just like the rest of the religious leaders throughout history then all we're actually doing is fooling ourselves and wasting each other's time that's why we take the time that we do each year to focus on this one part of the gospel story the resurrection because without it or without it we're all just wasting our time without the resurrection our faith means nothing Jesus' teachings simply become the ramblings of a religious lunatic and the church becomes a colossal waste of energy and human resources. By the way, people who say that Jesus was a good teacher but not the Son of God have either never actually read the Bible or they're simply not being intellectually honest because all you have to do is read the red letters in the New Testament. Just read the bits where Jesus was actually talking, and it doesn't take long at all to figure out that he was either the son of the living God, or he was completely crazy. You simply cannot make an intelligent, coherent argument based on biblical scripture that Jesus was something in between those two extremes. And so for those of us who believe that he is who he says he is, and that he did what he said he would do, listen, every single aspect of our lives is affected and informed and shaped by the resurrection. It has to be. Think of it this way. If your best friend or your spouse were to die and you went to the funeral and the graveside service and you watched them being lowered into the grave, buried in a casket, and then three days later you decide to go and visit the gravesite to pay your respects to your best friend or to your spouse, except that when you get there, you find that the gravesite has been dug up and it's now empty. Just think of the utter despair, right? The the hurt, the confusion that you would feel looking at that empty grave where just three days earlier you buried your best friend or your spouse. But then as as you're walking back home, completely devastated by this unlikely turn of events, your best friend or your spouse walks up beside you, full of life and in perfect health. Without question, that one single event would define every single day of the rest of your natural life. You would never not talk about it. You would never pretend it didn't happen. You would never try to distance yourself from that reality. It wouldn't even matter to you that it made some people uncomfortable every time you talked about it. I'm telling you, you wouldn't care one bit what anyone else ever thought about the fact that you believed it to be true because you would know that it was the truth and that is all that would matter to you, right? The reality that your best friend or your spouse was dead and then came back to life three days later, that event would shape the rest of your life, no matter what anyone else ever thought. Now look, for the Christian... The reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ should shape every single day of our lives. We should never not talk about it. We should never pretend it didn't happen. We should never distance ourselves from that reality, even if it makes some people uncomfortable every time we talk about it, because it's not just a story we believe in. It is the reality that we're living in, the single most important reality of them all. The fact that the same Jesus who was crucified 2,000 years ago is in fact alive today. And look, if that's not true, then what we believe as Christians actually means nothing. But if it is true, then what we believe as Christians means everything. C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity if false is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important, which of course begs the question, why then are there so many professing Christians today moderately committed to Christ? Well, maybe it's because, maybe... Maybe it's because we've believed the story of the resurrection without allowing the reality of it to actually shape and inform our lives, to change the way we see God and the way we see ourselves in light of His plan for this world and how we fit in to that plan. Because look, once you come to grips with the fact that that the Spirit of God is actually trying to speak to you every day of your life, and that He's trying to lead you where you need to go every day of your life, and that He's trying to give you what you need to accomplish His will for you every day of your life. Pandemic or no pandemic, once you reckon with the reality that Jesus is in fact alive and constantly unceasingly active in your life, on your behalf, you begin to listen for, and pay attention to His voice. You begin to follow His leading. You begin to receive all that He has for you, and then everything about how you live your life changes dramatically. It has to, which is exactly what happened in the lives of His first disciples. Once they reckoned with the reality of the resurrection, everything about how they were living their lives changed. Everything. In fact, the difference in their lives before and after the resurrection change the world, but that means living in the reality of not just belief in, but the reality that Jesus Christ is alive and well today, which of course also separates him from every other religious leader or teacher this world has ever known, because unlike every other religious leader who's ever promised anything eternal to their followers, of them all, Jesus is the only one who got up out of his grave after three days and made good on every single promise. And I know that most of you listening today probably believe that, which is important, of course. But the question is, have you allowed the reality of his resurrection to invade your very life, your thoughts, your dreams, your plans, your purpose, your choices, your questions? Listen, your fears, your everyday life. And if not, well, then maybe it's time you had a new revelation of the risen Christ. Because I'm telling you, once you come to grips with the fact that the Spirit of God is alive and active in your life today, and you begin to actually listen to His voice and follow His leading and receive the gifts that He's trying to give you, everything. I'm telling you, everything changes. Which, again, is exactly what we see with His disciples, right? They knew Jesus they knew his story better than anyone. They lived it firsthand. They, they certainly believed in him, right? They left their homes. Many of them left families, livelihoods to follow Jesus. Certainly they believed in him. And yet the moment he was accused and then crucified, they ran away as fast as they could from any association they had with him, even though he told them numerous times that he would be killed and then rise from the dead after three days. We see that in Matthew 16, 21, again in Mark eight thirty one, uh, in Mark 9, 31, in Mark 10, 34. And yet even after finding his tomb empty, they were still in hiding. It wasn't until after he revealed himself to them that the reality of his resurrection set in, which is when every aspect of their lives changed profoundly to the point that their lives after the resurrection were completely unrecognizable in comparison to their lives before the resurrection. So we're going to walk through that story together today from his death to his resurrection. And I want us to pay attention as we go to how the reality of who he was and what he did and the fact that he came back From the dead, how that utterly changed everything about the way his disciples lived their lives then, and how it should utterly change the way we live our lives today. So let's pick the story up then at John chapter 18 as Jesus and his disciples make their way by foot from Galilee to Jerusalem through Samaria and Bethpage and Bethany. They've shared their final meal together and are now about to cross the Kidron Valley from the great city itself as masses of people are flocking to Jerusalem to share the Passover meal. And so Jesus and his disciples are retreating from the city to the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll begin uh, John chapter 18. We'll read the first two verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus and his disciples leave the city to head out to the garden where they would often meet to rest and pray. And if you pay attention to the details given by John here, even this short journey to the garden by Jesus and his disciples is rife with prophetic significance, and it demonstrates quite powerfully, actually, the intention of Jesus to fulfill his calling knowing well and good what it was going to cost him personally and what he was about to do. John says they crossed the Brook Kidron. If you read that in the ancient Greek, the Brook Kidron is described as a kimeros. In the Arabic, it's called a wadi. It was a storm runlet, a dry gulch that not only had water in it during the rainy season, so uh, It was a dry creek bed that would fill up and act basically as a storm runoff through the Kidron Valley, which Jesus and his disciples had to cross in order to get to the garden. But this was the afternoon before the Passover, which is when the priests would sacrifice the lambs on the altar of the temple. And historical records that we have from Jesus' day tell us that as many as 250,000 lambs were slain by hundreds of priests. And so there were these drains at the altar areas that would carry the massive quantities of blood from a quarter of a million lambs, along with the water used for ritual cleansings down from the city to the otherwise dry brook of Kidron. In fact, the word Kidron itself means black brook or gloomy brook because of its crimson stained banks from the blood that flooded it every year at this time. So, so picture this. Jesus and his disciples are making their way to the garden with his death on a roman cross being imminent certainly at the forefront of his mind but first they have to cross over this brook kidron which was flowing to its banks with blood and water of course john 19:14 at jesus' crucifixion john says one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water the prophetic overtones are astounding which was certainly not lost on jesus in fact if you look through chapter 12 of this gospel and just read the red letters just read what jesus said in that one chapter it becomes undeniably clear that he knew exactly what was coming the truth is it's hard to imagine what he must have been thinking and feeling as he crosses over this brook as blood and water from the sacrificial lambs is flowing down through the valley, knowing exactly where God's plan for him was about to lead him. And yet Jesus, he never rejected the father's plan for his life, even knowing what he was about to endure. The 19th century English preacher Octavius Winslow said it this way, so completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself, he created the tree upon which he was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the accursed wood. You see, Jesus embraced the reality of his death, and so must we. Yet, we much prefer to think about and talk about, of course, the other parts. Of the gospel don't we the ones that that don't require nearly as much from us right the uh, the love of christ is easy to talk about the fact that he ate with sinners that's easy for us to talk about the the fact that he fed hungry people is easy to talk about his willingness and desire to accept the outcasts of society is easy to talk about we love to talk about those aspects of the gospel and we should and we are right to do so and of course Those parts of the gospel also happen to be popular themes in our culture today, which is why they're easy for us to talk about. But when you start talking about the fact that Jesus was mercilessly and brutally tortured, he was mocked, beaten, crucified, that's bad enough, but then when you explain why, He was brutally tortured, mocked, beaten, and crucified for your sin, my sin. Well, now, now we're making people feel uncomfortable. And we don't like to make people feel uncomfortable, so we shy away from talking about the difficult parts of the gospel. But listen, we have to embrace the reality of the crucifixion if we're going to live in the reality of the resurrection. Why? Because first of all, there's no resurrection without crucifixion. And secondly, there is no need for either if we're not desperately in need of a Savior because of our own sin. This is why those early disciples told the whole story, and so must we. In Matthew's account of Jesus' trial and execution, he says in chapter 27, verse 26, that Jesus was scourged just before being crucified. Roman flogging. Or scourging was a horrifically cruel punishment where those condemned were tied to a post and beaten with a leather whip that was interwoven with pieces of bone and metal, which tore through the skin and tissue, often exposing bones and even intestines. In fact, in many cases, the flogging itself was fatal. In this case, The Romans made certain to scourge Jesus near to death so that he would not remain alive on the cross after sundown because Jewish custom dictated that crucified bodies had to be taken down before evening, especially before the Sabbath, which uh, began at sundown on Friday. And yet as horrible as it is to have to contemplate all that he went through for you and for me, Every single step of that process was a fulfillment of what was prophesied about him in various scriptures throughout the Old and New Testaments leading up to these events. In other words, this is exactly what Jesus came to do for you and for me. In fact, if you keep reading in Matthew 27, verses 27 through 31, he describes how the Roman soldiers stripped Jesus down and put a scarlet robe on his body and pushed a crown of thorns into his scalp. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they'd mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Matthew 27, 29 through 31. Roman soldiers in Jerusalem at this point in history, they were well known for playing these cruel games with condemned prisoners. They would often dress the accused in wild costumes. They even had a huge game board. We know from history that they would place the prisoners on and then use them as game pieces. And they'd play these sadistic games to degrade and punish those who were condemned to die. And all the while, Jesus, who at any moment could have commanded legions of angels to come and snuff the life out of every single person who opposed him. Instead, he freely allowed them to torture him ruthlessly because he knew. He knew that he could not avoid that part of what he'd come to do for you and for me. We can't avoid it either. We cannot glaze over this hard truth about His death, a death that only happened because of our sin. We cannot ignore that part of His plan for our own lives that requires us then to die to ourselves. We must embrace this aspect of the gospel because look, if, if people do not understand the wages of their sin, they will never understand their need for a Savior cannot lead people into a true understanding of the gospel by only talking about Jesus's love for this world. Listen, we need to talk about that and it's a great place to start, but at some point we must confront the reality of his horrific death because of our sin and then our own subsequent need to die to ourselves, to repent of that sin and to live for him instead of living for ourselves. Well, that may not be a popular message. The fact is, it never has been. But it is a reality that we must embrace. Let's keep reading John 18, verses 3 through 9. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? gathers this band of soldiers. These were Roman soldiers and some temple police from the chief priests and Pharisees as well. In the original Greek language, the band of soldiers is described as a spira, which constituted a Roman cohort or a thousand men. Although at this point in history, in practice, the Roman cohort was usually about six to 700 soldiers. But when you add in the temple police, it is estimated there were in fact about a thousand men with lanterns and torches and weapons sent out to capture one man. Now, hearing this story growing up as a kid, I always pictured about 15 or 20 soldiers with Judas coming to arrest Jesus. Can you, can you imagine the sight, the sound of this mass of soldiers with torches and lanterns, the metal of their swords and armor clanging together as they approached the garden that evening, a thousand strong must have been a terrifying sight, a terrifying sound. And part of the reason they sent so many after Jesus, by the way, is because they were not only concerned about him and his immediate disciples. At this point, Jesus had become very popular with the masses of people. So there was a fear of an uprising upon his arrest. So sending out a 1,000 soldiers would much better prepare the authorities for any potential mob violence, which was always a concern for the Romans during the Passover when, according to Josephus, the first-century Jewish scholar, he said there were over 2,700,000 people crowded into the city at this time. And so a 1,000 battle-hardened soldiers come seeking to arrest Jesus. And so Jesus steps forward and he asks them, whom do you seek? When they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth, he responds with the very same words given to Moses through the, from, by God in the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. When Moses asked the Lord who he should tell the Israelites it was who was sending him. In the ancient Greek, it's the words egoemi, which literally means I am or I am who I am. And so the moment Jesus speaks those words, when he asks them, whom do you seek? He's, and, and they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, ego emi. The moment he speaks those words, revealing his true identity, a thousand battle-hardened soldiers with their lanterns and torches and weapons and armor fall flat to the ground. What a sight that must have been. I can't even imagine it. It's no wonder that in just a few moments, Peter has the courage to lunge forward into the horde of soldiers and cut the ear off of one of the men. Again, growing up, I used to wonder how Peter could be so courageous in the face of all these soldiers When in just a few moments in the face of a servant girl, he denies even knowing Jesus three times out of fear for his own life. It never made any sense to me, but it makes perfect sense now. When you understand what was happening here, you see all throughout scripture, in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Daniel, in Acts and in Revelation, when God revealed himself to people, typically they would fall over as if they were dead. In Revelation 1.17, describing the divine revelation of Christ to him on the island of Patmos, John wrote, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John saw Jesus and he collapsed on the ground. Okay, when Jesus reveals himself to these soldiers, his true identity, they collapse To the ground. And if Jesus, simply speaking his own name, can knock down a thousand hardened soldiers onto their backs, Peter must have felt invincible at that moment. And what a moment it was. See, Jesus wasn't afraid of the thousand soldiers. He wasn't afraid of their swords, of their torches, of their armor. He wasn't afraid of anything that men could do to him because he knew who he was. Jesus embraced the reality of his identity, and so must we. Yet again, it's easy for us to tell other people about his likable qualities, about his Popular character traits, even about his stand against the broken religious system of the day. But listen, Jesus isn't just a likable rebel who bucked the system. No, he also said of himself, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6, he said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John 10, 9, the apostle Peter said, there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4, 12, the apostle Paul said, there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for for all, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. The New Testament writers cite messianic prophecies from the Old Testament more than 130 times. The Old Testament contains as many as 400 prophetic passages that describe who the Messiah is and what he will do for us honestly. What do you think the chances are, the odds, that all of those prophecies could be fulfilled in one single person. The truth is, the chances are so staggeringly remote that the possibility of it being mere coincidence is a complete joke jesus alone is the messiah he is the one and only son of god the only way to the father the only truth the only light the only salvation the only one able to conquer death in the grave the only one who can give us new life the only one who could ever atone for our sins and the only one worthy of all our devotion and praise and worship It is good and it is right to tell people about the good qualities of Jesus. Certainly, of course it is. But at the same time, we cannot ignore his true identity because we're worried about sounding intolerant of other people's beliefs or religions. I've told you this story before when I met a friend, a Muslim man who had asked me to meet with him once a week to help him with some issues he was dealing with in his professional and personal life, and I'd only known him for a few months, and we'd begun meeting regularly, and yet God gave me a deep love and concern for this man almost immediately after getting to know him. And the last time we met, he asked me a question about my faith, to which I replied, Listen, if Jesus is who he says he is, then what I believe means everything. But if he's not who he says he is, well, then what I believe means nothing. And so he probed a little further, and for the next two hours I laid bare the gospel, my own desperate need for Christ in my life, or I wouldn't make it through my own struggles or survive the effects of my own sin because Jesus is the only way to salvation from the wrath of God that every one of us deserves. And being the kind and gracious man that he was, he thanked me at the end of our meeting, and he told me he was looking forward to our next one. One week later, he died. We dare not claim to love Jesus if we're not willing to tell people who he really is, because any moment could be their last. You see, telling people the truth about who Jesus is, His true identity, that's a reality we have to embrace. Let's keep reading then. We're going to skip down to chapter 19, halfway through verse 16 and read through verse 19, which is after uh, the torture and trial of Jesus as the soldiers now take him out to be crucified. John says, so they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is uh, in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified Him, and with Him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now we'll skip down to verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So even while dying an excruciating death, Jesus was still doing and saying everything required to fulfill the prophetic scriptures about himself. In particular, he references Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, when in his final dying moments he expresses his thirst, because again, Jesus understood that everything that was written about the coming of the Messiah was all written about him, which is why he not only embraced the reality of his death and embraced the reality of his identity, but Jesus embraced the reality of his resurrection. And so must we. You understand, even while dying on a cross, Jesus never doubted for a moment his own resurrection. Matthew describes the scene in chapter 27, just before Jesus gasps his last breath, he cries out, Eli, Eli, Lema sabachthani, which is Hebrew for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's in Matthew 27, 46. I have to be honest with you. After everything that Jesus did, understanding exactly who he was and the fact that he was not only going to die for mankind, but he knew exactly why. I talk about this every year because of its profound significance. I always thought it a bit anticlimactic that the son of the living God, who with all of his wisdom and understanding, not just in general, but in that specific situation, knowing exactly why he was there and exactly what he was accomplishing by being there and knowing that he was going to rise from the dead. It always felt like a bit of a letdown to me that he would spend his final breath questioning the father you know when you think about people being executed and they're given a chance to offer their final words at least from those who are in the right minds you expect their deepest innermost thoughts you expect them to muster up the most profound and meaningful statement they can give in that one moment and interestingly uh it is uh fascinating to read some of those statements that have been made by people who are about to be executed over the years because you know they've had a long time to think about what was about to happen to them. And indeed, if you read them, some of those final words are very compelling, very deep, very uh, thought-provoking, and some of them are quite profound. And so I guess I always expected a little more of that from Jesus, who had plenty of time to think about what he would say in that moment. He knew why he was there. He knew that he was going to rise from the dead and yet what I would read in Matthew always seemed more of a really sad expression of confused bewilderment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So for most of my life in church, I heard it explained that because Jesus was shouldering the sin of the world that in some way in that moment he had to be cut off from fellowship with the Father and he couldn't fathom that so he questioned the father in that final moment of his life on earth and again just to be honest that always left me with a bit of a sense of defeat even though i knew that jesus rose from the dead later and conquered sin and death that moment of triumph over the grave right then at jesus's last gasp as he shed his blood on the cross securing the victory over death forever that moment the greatest moment of victory in humankind. It always felt like a bit of a defeat to me as Jesus himself seems to be questioning the Father's absence, and that's what I believe for most of my life. But the truth is, there's so much more to what was actually happening in that moment that Jesus simply being bewildered by the Father turning away from sin. In fact, what was really happening was not at all what I thought or what I was taught, which at best is an incomplete picture and possibly a total misunderstanding of that passage, you see. In the first century, the scripture that people had and knew was, of course, predominantly Old Testament scripture. And some of the most commonly quoted and well-known passages of scripture at the time were the Psalms, which, of course, are songs, right? The word psalm means hymn. These were songs that were sung and committed to memory and taught and quoted by God's people all the time. And if you think about a really famous song from our lifetime, a song that everyone would know really well. You can simply hear the first line of that song and nothing else, and immediately you'll know what that song is and even what it's about, right? The message of that song and how it makes you feel, all just by hearing the first line because you know the song. Right? It's like it's like the old show. If you're, if you're as old as me or older, you'll remember Name That Tune, where they would play the first line of a song, and the person listening would have to guess the name of the song. And of course, the more well-known the song, the easier it was to name the song. That's how songs and music uh, work in general. The more you hear it, the more it stays with you, to the point that just hearing the first line of a song can instantly recall the entire piece. So so for instance, if, if someone were to sing, Oh say can you see, right? Just by hearing that, that one line of the song, if you're an American at least, I'm sure you know what that song is. You know what that song's about. You can even begin to feel the emotions that it stirs up inside of you and maybe a grateful sense of awe and wonder for the victories that have been hard fought and won and the privilege of living in such an amazing country and all of that just by hearing the first line of a song. The reason that matters is because Psalm 22 is one of those songs one of the songs that was taught in Jesus's day it was a well-known song that starts out as a great lament about suffering that happens to end in great victory over one's enemies in fact psalm 22 was known as a song about victory even in the worst circumstances when it seems the whole world is against you psalm 22 was the ultimate cry of victory over the enemy and again this song of victory was taught over and over again, and well known at the time that Jesus was hanging there on the cross. In fact, we've already seen John point out that Jesus fulfilled Psalm 22:15 15 in his great thirst just before dying. And if you read the beginning of Psalm 22, the very first line of that song says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're getting the picture As Jesus was dying on that cross, he wasn't using his final breath to express some kind of doubt or defeat or bewilderment with the Father, not at all. You see, as he felt his life slipping away with one final breath in his lungs, he cries out the first line of one of the greatest songs about victory over our enemy that had ever been written. Jesus was quoting a very familiar line to a very familiar song. He was making a statement to the world in that moment, both to those there that day witnessing his death and to everyone after who would ever read Matthew's account of Jesus' crucifixion, that in that moment, in the very worst of circumstances that anyone could ever fathom having to face, Jesus was claiming victory for all who would ever call upon his name forevermore. And then seconds later, that victory was won. Can you feel the gravity, the difference in that passage in Matthew now from what seemed to be a sad statement of defeat to what is actually the greatest victory cry in the history of humankind? Because Jesus knew what he'd come to do. He knew who he was and he knew where he was going to end up. And so even in his dying, he was living in the reality of his resurrection. So there on the cross, with one final breath, he put an exclamation point on his coming resurrection by claiming that victory over death. And then as we move to chapter 20, we see his resurrection become a reality to those who loved him the most. We'll finish with this. Chapter 20, the first 16 verses. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus was alive. But they saw him die. They saw him buried. They saw his tomb. Yet here he is, alive as ever. And that's the reality of that resurrection made its impact, beginning with Mary and then on to the other disciples. It defined every single day of the rest of their lives. From that moment on, everything changed. They could no longer hide the reality of who he was and what he'd done for them. They could no longer hold back from telling his story to anyone and everyone who would listen, even if it meant making people uncomfortable, even when it meant persecution, even when it meant their own suffering and death. Why? Because the reality of his resurrection fundamentally changed the reality of their own lives to the point that every one of them devoted every day of the rest of their lives to boldly proclaiming what they knew to be true because they'd witnessed it firsthand. I mean, maybe you could see one or two of them losing their minds if Jesus had not actually risen from the grave and deciding to get together and fool the world by creating a false religion based on a lie. But all of them... Chuck Colson, he's now passed away, served as special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. He was known as President Nixon's hatchet man, and as many of you know, he gained notoriety at the height of the Watergate scandal. Ultimately, he pled guilty to obstruction of justice for his part in that political scandal, and he served seven months in federal prison. He later became an outspoken Christian in what was a radical life change that led to the founding of a ministry called Prison Fellowship and then Prison Fellowship International, where he taught and trained people how to focus on a Christian worldview in every aspect of their lives. He also went on to author more than 30 books, outstanding books. The point is, Colson was a man who knew what it meant to be radically transformed by the truth of the gospel. And this is what he had to say about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep a lie for 3 weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a story we believe in. It is a reality that we live in and it should therefore define and dramatically transform every single aspect of who we are and how we live our lives today, just like it did for those 12 men in the Bible. But imagine if after seeing Jesus alive, just imagine after touching him, after talking with him, after walking with him and eating with him, imagine if after all of that, when those disciples were around other people, they pretended that none of it was true. Because they didn't want to make other people feel uncomfortable. Or they didn't want the reality of it to disrupt their own lives. So they they lived like it never happened. (laughs) No, that would be unthinkable. That's like us seeing our best friend or our spouse alive and well after they'd been dead for three days. And then speaking with them and touching them and eating with them and living with them. But then when other people were around, we pretended like none of it really happened. That would be unthinkable because the fact that this person was dead and is now alive would become our new reality, one that would shape every single day of the rest of our lives, which is exactly what happened with his disciples then and exactly how it should be with his disciples now. So just ask yourself, is the resurrection a story that I believe in? Or is it the reality that I'm actually living in day by day? Am I actively listening to his voice in my life every day? Am I literally following him, going where he leads me every day? Am I receiving what he's offering me every day? Or am I just living day by day under my own steam and my own ability, believing in a story? Because listen, if the resurrection The fact that Jesus is alive and active in your life, always speaking and always leading and always giving, if that reality is not continually shaping your life each day, then, well, maybe it's time you had a new revelation of the risen Christ. Because I'm telling you, it's not just a story that you believe in. It is a reality that He is inviting you to live in. Let's pray.